Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Throw in some music. We can watch the game. Or we could keep it simple. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. September 26th, 1960, 9.30 p.m. The show Peter Gunn had just finished airing on NBC. And then, 66 million Americans tuned in to watch a revolution in the process for selecting a president. This is the NBC Television Network. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. The candidates need no introduction. The Republican candidate, Vice President Richard M. Nixon. Vote for Nixon and Lodge, November 8th. And the Democratic candidate, Senator John F. Kennedy. According to rules set by the candidates themselves, each man shall make an opening statement of approximately eight minutes' duration. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. And today we're talking about the relatively recent tradition of presidential debates. When did they start? Who decides how they're run? Why do we do them? And what we should be looking for when we watch them? Hannah, what is your first debate memory? I would say it's more like an entire season of debates. It was during the Obama-McCain election of 2008 and I I knew that I would be turning 18 a couple of days after the election so I watched these debates with a great deal of pain in my heart because I knew I wouldn't actually be allowed to vote Couldn't in that vote. election that's right I think I saw Saturday night live parodies of the debates before I saw the real ones a thousand points of light <laughs> stay the course mm-hmm. I think my first visceral staying up late watching the debate memory is October of 1992 between, actually I should say among, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and H. Ross Perot. Oh, that's right. That is the first and so far only three candidate presidential debate. That's so cool. You opened with a clip from the 1960 debate between Nixon and Kennedy, which I know was the first televised debate, but it's certainly not the first debate, is it? Well, here's Alan Schroeder. He's Professor Emeritus at Northeastern University, and he's the author of several books on presidential debates. Well, there were the live debates, uh, such as the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the senatorial debates of 1858. 1858! Those debates were for a Senate seat, not for the presidential election. Uh, But what's interesting about them is they were published two years later when Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas were the presidential candidates. 
But until the late 19th century, candidates for president did little personal campaigning. Their supporters did most of the campaigning uh, and attacking of opponents. So pre-broadcast, there were debates uh, held in person between candidates. They were these big events where spectators would show up by the hundreds and bring picnic baskets and sort of make an all-day activity out of it. But once broadcasting, radio and then television came on the scene, there were more attempts to introduce political debates. What was it in 1960 then that caused this change? Why the debates then? They were really a creation of the television networks of that era who wanted to be taken more seriously. You know, they were entertainment media, but not so much information media. So the networks in the late 50s saw an opportunity to uh, legitimize themselves by doing political debates on television. And they got John F. Kennedy on board. And once he was on board, Nixon sort of couldn't get out of it without looking like a coward. And so that's how we got the first uh, debate in 1960. So Americans who listened to that first debate on the radio were pretty split on a winner. But television viewers enormously favored Kennedy. Why? What happened? Uh, Nixon had been hospitalized before the first debate and had only recently been released. So he was he had lost a lot of weight. He was pallid. He was lured by the Kennedy people into thinking that John F. Kennedy hadn't used makeup. So by God, he wasn't going to use makeup either. And he does look bad. You know, you look at it now and it isn't, you know, he isn't this uh, scarecrow, that this sweating scarecrow that history remembers him as. But you could definitely see how uncomfortable he was and, and ill at ease and ill in general. So in this debate, Nixon and Kennedy were seated when not taking questions, and then they would rise to speak behind a shared podium to a panel of news reporters. Well, I would suggest, Mr. Van Oker, that uh, if you know the president, that was probably a facetious remark. Uh, I would also suggest that insofar as... And when Nixon was behind the podium, you could sort of see him bending his knee in discomfort as he answered questions. Now, Kennedy... Kennedy had prepared for this debate. He had studied camera angles. He'd read a lot about TV. Uh, he wore makeup. I come out of the Democratic Party, which in this century has produced Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, and which supported and sustained these programs. Which but I Nixon treated this just like another campaign event. Uh, and refused to wear makeup. Nixon himself went on what he called a milkshake diet, where he just started pounding the calories in, in a hope of gaining weight again, and did look better in, in the later debates. He also learned the hard way to use makeup. I feel like there's so much more to lose in a debate than there is to gain. Like a single gaffe, a single mistake, or even what you look like can affect your electability. Yeah, and maybe this is why after 1960, there were no presidential debates until 1976. Okay, this brings me to the question of who decides how these things are going to go. Like, are they seated? Are they standing? How much time do they get? Who asks the questions? Do candidates fight with each other behind the scenes and then come up with a mutual solution? 
They do not. Well, every general election presidential debate since 1988 has been uh, sponsored and staged by the Commission on Presidential Debates. And then the candidates can either agree or disagree, and they'll try to negotiate a little bit around the margins. But basically, uh, they don't have as much clout. The campaigns don't have as much clout anymore as the, uh, the debate commission. I didn't know that there was a commission on presidential debates. I didn't either. What do they do? The Commission on Presidential Debates is a private, nonprofit, nonpartisan corporation based in Washington, D.C. We were uh, created in 1987 and have been doing the general election presidential and vice presidential debates ever since 1988. We select the moderator, and the moderator selects the questions, which are not known to the commission or to the candidates. This is Janet Brown, the executive director for the Commission on Presidential Debates. I called her a week before the first debate of this election cycle. How are you, Janet? Um, I'm insane. Thank you for asking. How many debates has she run? 30 debates. 30? 30! The rules that the commission sets are public knowledge, like the format, who the moderator is, the dates. But there are non-public agreements as well. It's not all out in the open. Uh, In 2012, a Time reporter published Obama and Romney's Memorandum of Understanding. Uh, That's a document that's the secret rules for a debate. And that included no direct questions from one candidate to the other, uh, no requests for a show of hands, no call-outs to any non-family member of the audience, and an agreed-upon comfortable temperature. To be clear, the commission manages presidential and vice-presidential debates, not the primary debates. Those are run by the party, And as such, they can get a little wacky. I don't trust President Obama with our records. I know you gave him a big hug. And if you want to give him a big hug again, go right ahead. I am paying for this microphone. For presidential debates, the commission adopted the journalist panel format that we heard about from the 1960 debate. Uh, That's a format that continued in every debate from 1976 on. But it became clear that if you could reduce the number of other participants on the stage and focus more time and attention on the candidates, that's what serves the public best. So starting in 1992, we experimented with having at least part of one debate that was run by a single moderator. I'm curious about the town hall format of debates, where the audience is a bunch of uncommitted voters and they're speaking directly to the candidates. When did we start doing that? Town hall format actually goes back to 92. It was introduced that year and has proven um, very popular with the public uh, for one primary reason. People identify with the citizens who have been selected to ask questions of the candidates. As you can well imagine, it changes the dynamic if a candidate is answering a question from a citizen as opposed to a journalist. We have one more question from Ken Bone about uh, energy policy. Ken? What steps will your energy policy take to meet our energy needs while at the same time remaining environmentally friendly and minimizing job loss for fossil power plant workers? And the nature of those conversations is, is quite different than it is when you have a journalist who is uh, conducting the whole debate and, and asking the questions. Um, it's a particular privilege to work on those because, needless to say, those citizens don't do television on a daily basis. This is 
this is a a very unusual thing. They come to it with such seriousness and um, sense of purpose on behalf of their fellow citizens. And that's that's a particularly meaning. Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, We are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government... The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. ...full one to be a part of. How do candidates even prepare for these? They each hire someone to be their sparring partner. It's a crucial role in preparing for debates. Their sparring partner is usually a savvy politician who impersonates their opponent. Like, not their accent or clothing or anything, but their persona, their ideas, uh, the way they might phrase questions and answers. And they do mock debates for days on end. So I know Janet told us that the candidates don't know the questions that they're going to be asked. But when they learn who the moderator is going to be, do they prepare based on who that person is? Yeah, they do. Here's a clip of former President George H.W. Bush talking to journalist Jim Lehrer uh, about his opinion on debates. Ugly. I don't like them. Why not? Well, partially I wasn't too good at them. Secondly, there's some of it's contrived, show business. You prompt to get the answers ahead of time. Now this guy, you got Bernie Shaw on the panel, and here's what he's probably going to ask you. And you got Leslie Stahl over here, and she's known to go for this and that. And you got, I'll never be sure I remember what Leslie's going to ask. And as we learned with Nixon in 1960. The visuals of a debate can matter as much as what is actually said. Alan told me one of the most telling moments in debate history involved the first George Bush glancing down at his watch during a town hall debate. 
giving the impression to the studio audience and the audience at home that he had no interest in being there. Now, was I glad when the damn thing was over? Yeah. And maybe that's why I was looking at it. Only 10 more minutes of this crap. I mean. <laughs> that was the town hall debate where a member of the audience asked Bush this question. Yes, how has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And, it's and Bush actually said, I don't get it. And he stayed behind his podium, and he honestly did not answer the question. And then Bill Clinton comes in right after him and walks to the edge of the stage and directly engages the woman and asks her about her life and empathizes as only Bill Clinton could do. Tell me how it's affected you again. Um, you know people who've lost their well, jobs, yeah. lost their homes. Uh-huh. Well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected me every year. Congress and the president. And so, you know, it was it was a telling moment that I think matters, even though it's trivial in a way. It matters because presidential campaigns strive so hard to control everything that goes out to the public. And so when something busts through the veneer like that, it's I think our our job as voters to pay attention. You've got the moderated debate. You've got the town hall style debate. Are there any plans for like any other kind of debate format in the future? Yeah, Janet said there were some ideas bopping around. If you look back at different debates, there are ones that stand out in as as it happens in Massachusetts in uh, senatorial and gubernatorial races from some years ago, where essentially the moderator served um, almost as a timekeeper, and the candidates were willing to do debates that that um, essentially were conversations between the candidates. From our work, it's clear that the public wants the maximum amount of attention and time focused on the candidates. That's who they're trying to learn about. So if we can continue to work toward having the candidates with minimal intrusion, interference by the moderator, uh, that obviously is what the public um, really finds very, very valuable. And the commission is responsive and flexible to these debates as they happen. Um, after the first debate in this cycle... Mr. President, your campaign agreed that both sides would get two-minute answers uninterrupted. Well, your, your side agreed to it, and why don't you observe what your campaign agreed to as a ground? They made a public statement that they would revisit the format and the rules. Uh, and a source close to the commission said they were considering cutting mics if the candidates kept interrupting each other. I will say I did recently read that people tuning in to the Trump-Biden debate, the most recent one, 84 percent said that the debate wasn't going to change their mind either way. So uh, what is the point of a debate <laughs> if not to change minds. I think debates are very important even if they don't really decide the election because there's not much during the campaign that belongs to the people, to the voters, but debates do. The journalists have to step aside. The candidates have to respond spontaneously and in real time. 
And we just don't get that many peeks behind the curtain. And so when one is offered to us, I think we have to pay attention. As far as what to keep an eye on during the debate, one of the things that always fascinates me is how do the candidates treat each other? You know, what are they doing when the other person is speaking? What are their facial expressions toward the other person? And I think you can kind of get uh, some insight into them as human beings just based on that, that very little point, how do we treat other people? At the end of the day, they are individual human beings and um, they're running the gauntlet of a very public and rough and tumble campaign or service. And you are constantly reminded of the poignancy that these are people and that their decisions will involve those closest to them and change their lives. I've been asked by the candidates to thank the American networks and the affiliated stations for providing time and facilities for this joint appearance. Other debates in this series will be announced later and will be on different subjects. This is Howard K. Smith. Good night from Chicago. All right, that's debates. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. <laughs> Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with you, Hannah McCarthy. Thank you. Jackie Fulton knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a close personal friend of Jackie's. And Senator, you know Jackie's Jack. Erica Janik is our executive producer, and she paid for this microphone. Music in this episode by Chad Crouch, Diala, Scott Holmes, and that composer with the beats so nice and crispy, Chris Zabriskie. You like political ephemera and deeper dives into these topics, don't you? Please join our bi-weekly newsletter, Extra Credit. It's snappy. It's fun. Uh, it's at civics101podcast.org. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Oh, come on. You think I'm not going to put this in here? The greatest debate zinger of all time. I mean, we referenced it in the episode, but you just got to hear it. 1988 vice presidential debate between Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benston. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. I will be prepared to deal with the people in the Bush administration if that unfortunate event would ever occur. Senator Benson. Senator, I serve with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard... I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. 
The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.